please turn to Daniel chapter 6 for today's scripture reading. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the, law of his, with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is the word of the Lord. In the late 6th century BC, Jerusalem was attacked by the empire of Babylon. The temple was plundered, the city was destroyed, Thousands of Hebrew people were taken from their homes and relocated to Babylon as exiles. They became this foreign minority, surrounded by a new culture, by these religions and powers that were all completely new to them. How, how would they respond? How could they respond? How could they live as exiles in this new place? Well, some of them said, well, we're here in Babylon. We have no choice about that, but we will have nothing to do with these Babylonians or their culture. We're basically going to separate as much as we can from these people. That's how some Hebrews approached living in exile. Others chose a different path. They, they tried to fit in as much as they could. They took on Babylon's religions and gods, and they took on a fully Babylonian way of life. And those two might seem like the only real options for living in exile. Either you separate or you completely assimilate. But the book of Daniel shows us a different way, a third way to live in exile. Daniel and his friends were brought in to work for the Babylonian government. They, they were working directly for the king. And some Hebrews would have said, hey, they can't do that. That's compromise. Serving the nation that invaded us? Other Hebrews might have said, well, hey, if you're going to be in the serving the king, you may as well keep quiet, enjoy the position, and blend in. But Daniel and his friends, they don't do either of those. They, they don't mindlessly assimilate, nor do they stubbornly separate Instead, what they do is they live a life of faithful presence. They, they work faithfully in the roles that they've been given while remaining faithful to their God. For instance, back in Daniel 3, when, when they're commanded to bow down and worship the king and his empire as supreme, they refuse to do that. They remain loyal to their God. And then when Daniel has the opportunity to confront the king, and, and call him out on some of his sin and, and tell him about the true God, Daniel steps up and he does that boldly. And so you see, it's through this faithful presence that 
on the one hand, they served the good of that society, but at the same time, they stood out as radically different. And they ended up, in a, in a sense, subverting the sinful values of that society. And for followers of Jesus Christ, this teaches us so much about how to live as his people in this world. We are called not to assimilate, on the one hand, nor to separate, but to live in this third way. Listen to the way God himself describes this in Jeremiah chapter 29. He's speaking through the prophet, and he says in chapter 29, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its good you will find your good. So how does this apply to us as 21st century followers of Christ? If you're a follower of Jesus, live in this society, live in this world, and seek its good, even as you remain loyal to your God, remembering who he is and who you are as his people. That's faithful presence. We learn at least three more details about what that looks like right here in Daniel 6. Here's what Daniel 6 teaches us, that living well in exile means living with excellence, living with integrity, and living in dependence. Excellence, integrity, dependence. And all three of these characterized Daniel. And and they set him apart. So, So as we read through Daniel 6, as we're about to, look for all three of these. Look for the excellence. Look for the integrity. Look for the dependence as we read through this chapter. Read through the whole story. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Satraps, by the way, were like governors. They were, each satrap was set over a particular province. And what these satraps were tasked with doing, among other things, was collecting tribute for the king. These higher officials or presidents, as they're called in some translations, their, their job was to oversee the satraps and make sure that the money was getting back to the king. The tribute was getting back to him. Taxes, whatever you want to call them. Verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. This is a ban on prayer. And when it says here, make petition of any god or any man, it probably means that people were banned from praying to any god other than the king and also banned from making petitions of priests that represented those gods, men that stood in positions of receiving and then delivering those petitions to these many gods. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows up in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem, 
He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. I love that line there. He just did what he had always been doing, as he had done previously. And then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or any man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed according concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where, Dan was, where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you continually serve been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O oh, king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, then those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. We're looking for excellence here, first of all. Excellence in the life of Daniel at this point in history, the Babylonian Empire has already fallen. They were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel is now over 80 years old, and now he's serving this ruler named Darius. And he did it so well that he's been promoted, and he's about to be promoted again. He's going to be set over the entire kingdom, a kind of prime minister role. Why? Verse 4 tells us, because an excellent spirit was in him. This word for excellent, sometimes it's translated exceptional. There, there's something that places Daniel in a class all of his own. Nebuchadnezzar had noticed the same thing. Now, not just that Daniel did good work or that he was intelligent, but more than that, there was something about the way that he lived that was special. There was not only a commitment to serve well, 
But there was this God-given commitment and God-given ability to strive for excellence. It, It speaks of his diligence. It speaks of his high standards for his work and for his life. And based on what this book has already told us about Daniel, we can know what drove Daniel to excellence. Colossians 3.23 says this, and it's a principle that I believe Daniel embodied. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Daniel is working for an empire that invaded another empire that invaded his home. Why work hard? Why do your best? You know, maybe survival is a, is a motive. It's legitimate. Maybe he worked hard in order to just make it alive. I think he had also internalized, he clearly had internalized the words of Jeremiah who said, seek the good of the city. And plus he knew that the king, as king, deserved to be served well. He was an authority over him. But there was so much more than that motivating Daniel. Daniel saw himself as a servant of the living God. And so the question for us is, do you see yourself as a servant of God? If you do, then everything you do is for him. And if everything you do is for him, then that means that no corner of your life isn't meant for him. Which means that we cannot be in the habit of cutting corners. When I was in college, I worked part-time at an auto detailing shop. This is a place where we would clean um, cars, luxury cars for wealthy customers. And some customers brought in more money because they got their cars detailed so often and they had such large fleets of cars that they were very important to the business. And so we would pay extra attention to those cars. We'd do an extra good job on those cars. Some customers, they tipped better. And so we would try to pay more attention to those customers too because if they tip well, you want to give them an extra you want, to, you want to pay a little more attention to the, to the details of their vehicle. Some customers were just more demanding, and so you didn't want to get yelled at, you didn't want to get reported to your boss, and so you just pay more attention to their vehicles too. But, but what all this did is it trained us to adjust our level of attention and care depending on the customer. And frankly, that's how many of us walk through life. Adjusting our, attention, uh, our level of attention and care depending on who's involved, who's going to see this? Colossians 3.23, again, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Now, of course, we need to balance that a bit because some tasks are more important than others. And most of us aren't going to dedicate the same exact level of care and attention to every task because they're not all equally important. And that makes sense. But that's not the point. The point is, are you doing whatever you're doing with a good conscience before God? And are you cultivating a sense that all I do, whether it's at school, every project, every assignment, or whether it's everything you do to serve your family, or everything you do at work, or everything you do in the church, can you say, I'm doing it as unto the Lord? It's an act of service to him. And so, no, they're not all equally important. And we all have limited bandwidth, and so we have to dedicate more attention to some things than others, of course. And yet, and yet, can we say, what I have done, I have done with a good conscience before God, and I've done it for God. He gave me this responsibility. He gave me the ability to carry it out so that even if I don't get the credit I deserve, or even if I don't get the results I want, or even if I'm not enjoying it, I know he's pleased. 
And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So take that principle and apply it to that next exam or that next assignment or school project that you need to tackle. Or take it and apply it to that next meal you get to prepare. Or to that next client you get to meet. Or the next mess you get to clean up. We are coming off, my family's coming off like a three-week or three-and-a-half-week or something um, run of stomach viruses in our family. And uh, we're, but now my mom's the last one to fall. She's, we've all, like almost every member of my family's fallen from one week after the other, and now my mom's the one who's laid up with this thing. And um, as you know, if you've got a home full of kids and the stomach virus is going around, there's a lot of cleaning up going on. There's a lot of disinfecting. There's a lot of waking up bleary-eyed in the middle of the night to clean up stuff that you don't want to go near. This principle can change the way I approach that task. Yes, I'm serving my child. Yes, it stinks, literally. Yes, it's not fun. Yes, I'd rather be doing a million other things. And yet, somehow, through serving my family in this way, I'm also serving my God, who's called me into this responsibility and given me the wherewithal to do it. You see, applying this principle, this Colossians 3 principle, to all of our work changes our approach to work. Daniel could strive for excellence because he knew who it was that he was serving. He was, think about this. This is a man with remarkable prophetic gifting. But he's working in government of all places. He'd probably rather be doing something else somewhere else. But he aimed for excellence because he knew his God and he knew who he was as God's servant. Excellence. A mark of Daniel's life. But two, we see in his life another characteristic, integrity. Integrity. Daniel's excellence caused some resentment. His colleagues got jealous of him. You could picture them saying, hey, slow down. You're making the rest of us look bad, right? He, he, he's about to get promoted. Verse 3, again, his colleagues and, and some others under him, some subordinates, what do they do? Verse 4, it says, they sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Remember, what satraps are doing is they're collecting tribute, and then that tribute is going to people like Daniel and two other guys who are taking that tribute and making sure that it goes back to the king. Lots of money and gold is changing hands, and I'm sure there was lots of lots of room for error and lots and lots of room for fraud. These guys start looking as carefully as they can at Daniel's record, and they can't find anything to accuse him of. They were jealous of his success, but when they began to dig into his life, what they found was faithfulness. <laughs> and that's really significant because they went through his records, right? They went through his trash, but they couldn't say, ah, we've, we've found this one hidden part of his life here that he's been covering up. We searched the images on his hard drive, even the stuff that he thought he had deleted, we looked through his deleted email. We went through his tax documents. We talked to some of his old friends. He's not always who, who, he, who he seems to be. They couldn't say that. What they found was consistency. We looked through his yearbook. What they find? What they found was faithfulness. Integrity. And in our day and age, this is shocking because right now, especially when it comes to people in government, it feels like everyone is hiding skeletons, doesn't it? 
And, and it's relatively easy to find them. And we feel like more skeletons are going to just come out of the closet on a daily basis. Everyone has left evidence of their indiscretions on social media, on video, checks signed to cover up adulterous relationships, or checks signed to, to pay off victims. Famous, powerful people are having all their dirt dug up, and some of them are facing a day of reckoning right now. Others, apparently, are going to make it through that day of reckoning. They may make it through unscathed in spite of all their dirt. But all that makes the integrity of Daniel all the more remarkable because they could find nothing unless they found it in connection with the law of his God. The only fault we can find with this man is that he loves his God. Isn't that amazing? In March of 2019, when every day we're hearing about sins by politicians, imagine a political official like this. The worst thing you can accuse him of is he loves and prays to his God. For one thing, this tells us that his colleagues knew who his God was, which I think is significant in and of itself. And I think it's, 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 a, it's an encouragement, at the very least, to us to live publicly as followers of Christ in the workplace. So the people that we work with and co-labor and collaborate with daily know who our God is. For one thing, it helps us remain accountable when we do that, doesn't it? When people know that you identify as a Christian, doesn't that put some pressure on you to maintain the kind of integrity that God calls you to? And doesn't it also provide opportunities for you to then express and show the love of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ to your coworkers also? So at the very least, live publicly. Let's live publicly as followers of Jesus in the workplace. But again, this points to Daniel's integrity. These colleagues and, and their and subordinates, they conspire together. The king falls for their plan. And he even, even though he seems to admire Daniel, he seems to actually love Daniel. But his arms are tied. He had unwisely signed that injunction, and it can't be changed. And now Daniel faces this dilemma. If I pray to my God again, I will die. So what does Daniel do? Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He's not going to a window, by the way, to show off. He's going there because that's what he's always done. Face Jerusalem, the promised land, the place that God had given his people, and the place that God had promised to take his people back to. He was a man of God who worshipped his God, and this new law couldn't change that. I want us to think for a moment about the, the meaning of this word integrity. The way that we normally use it is to mean honest and upright. But there's a... a an older and, and more literal meaning to this word integrity. Integrity means to be whole and undivided. Listen to Diane Langberg. She's a psychologist who works with a lot of trauma victims. She's a Christian. She says, to have integrity is to be the same all the way through. Hear that? Integrity is to be the same all the way through. To have integrity means wholeness under pressure, to not split apart, end quote. Let's, let's think of a, a piece of furniture like this table up here or a bridge. Integrity is vital, right? Integrity is the ability of that structure to hold together even under weight. So that when you stand on that table, it doesn't break. When you drive over that bridge, it doesn't start to splinter and the bolts start to come out and all of a sudden it starts to disintegrate. That's the key, she goes on to say. For pressure is often applied to test something to see if it will hold up. 
Our lives are full of pressure. Are we constant under that pressure? Or do we split and become divided? Because after all, quote, no one could be expected to remain honest, faithful, loving, or self-controlled under those circumstances. You see what she's saying? To, to split apart under pressure, like the pressure that Daniel is under here, this threat of death, it's this temptation to become another self in certain situations. Another version of you to fit that particular situation. It's to, to split off parts of your life that are inconsistent with who you claim to be, to become divided. For Daniel, the temptation would have been to simply stop praying in the way he used to. After all, he, he could maintain his persona. Couldn't he really maintain his persona as a faithful man of God? He had done enough. He's 80-plus years old. He could maintain that persona of godliness even if he broke in this one area. But he refused to break. There's so much pressure in our lives, New Hope, to, to split apart, to, to pretend, to deceive, and to hide those little split-off pieces. No, no one will know what I do here. No one's looking. No one will know what I did with, with this money. Or no one will know what I do with this person. No one will know what I do with this app. And with each hidden sin, we lose more and more of the wholeness, the integrity that we are made to have. I heard a court testimony recently of a man who was known to be a loving dad and husband with an amazing marriage. Only, only, it was discovered that he had a series of adulterous relationships over the course of that marriage that no one had ever known about. But now when he's brought to trial, he says, I'm, I'm the, I am the man I always claimed to be. He says, I love my wife. My, my marriage was healthy. I love my kids. Th this aspect of my life over here, these affairs, that has nothing to do with all that. This has nothing to do with who I am. That's not the real me. You see what this is? It's a loss of integrity of wholeness. It's a, it's a splitting off. We fool ourselves into thinking that these hidden areas of our lives can be given over to sin, and somehow that's not really the real me. Do any of us live this way? Even if it might be in less scandalous, much more respectable ways. Maintaining one persona all the while, this hidden self is being cultivated at the same time. That's the opposite of integrity. Let's go back to Diane Langberg again. She, she quotes a, a New York University media scholar named Jay Rosen. He says, Jay Rosen says, there's an important distinction between public and private character. What a candidate does in private is largely irrelevant. What matters is their public conduct. And Lambert goes on to comment, in other words, what he's saying is, the only part of you that matters is the part that is seen in public. And then Lambert goes on to push hard against that. But every human is tempted to live in this way, aren't we? What really matters is who I am here. <laughs> No, 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 no. There's... It's delusional to think so. And this is certainly a temptation for self-professed followers of Jesus Christ who are living in exile. There's this temptation while we're here in exile in this world to maintain the appearance of one who lives for the kingdom of God while in certain areas of life you've completely absorbed the values of this fallen kingdom. Daniel represents a different way. 
Daniel, in fact, embodies the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what Daniel embodies. He's living amongst Gentiles, amongst these Medes and Persians and Babylonians. As an exile, he abstains from the passions of the flesh, the passions, for instance, to extort money or to embezzle or to simply stop praying in order to rescue his life. He keeps his conduct honorable before the Gentiles so that when they speak against him, they can't find anything wrong with him. And instead, Darius, at the end of the story, has no choice but to glorify God. Excellence and integrity, two major characteristics of this man, Daniel. Some of us, maybe we hear that and we, we love the excellence part because maybe some of us are driven and we like striving for excellence. We are, maybe you're a perfectionist. But the integrity part of that matters deeply as well because the integrity part means that you will not compromise what is good and right in your quest for excellence or success. You see, because Daniel valued both excellence and integrity, he was able to hold them in the right priorities. He could have reasoned, listen, if I pray and I'm caught praying, I will lose my influence, I will lose my position, and that will hurt the kingdom because these guys are corrupt. I'm the only honest guy around here. I need to keep my position. He could have reasoned that way. Pragmatically, it makes sense, frankly. But he didn't. And I think that's instructive for us. Don't trade in Christ for success or for safety. Don't trade in your conscience for the approval of people who did not die for you and did not rise for you and who cannot resurrect you unto life eternal. Don't trade in Christ for that. The last characteristic we see in Daniel here is dependence. Dependence. Prayer was not simply a duty for Daniel. I believe he was able to survive and thrive in exile for so long because he was a person of prayer. That's why he was able to make it this long. He's a man who worshipped and knew intimate fellowship with his God, increasingly intimate fellowship with his God over time as the result of that, that, that repeated, steady repetition of prayer daily, three times a day going before God, confessing his sin, hearing from God, receiving grace from God every day. The seeming rhythm and maybe even seeming, the rhythm and the maybe even seeming monotony of that daily repetition led to him being a man of excellence and integrity. The slow, steady reps as he was meeting with God to be reminded of who God is and to be reminded of who he was as a servant of God. See, Daniel was a man aware of his dependence on his creator so that when 50 years more than 50 years earlier, when Nebuchadnezzar threatened Daniel's life, what did Daniel do? He went and he prayed. <laughs> and he went to his community of friends and they prayed together. And now as an old man, what does he do? He does the same thing. He's on his knees before God. And when he comes out of that lion's den alive, why does he come out alive? He comes out alive because the Lord himself closed the mouths of the lions. Daniel doesn't walk out of that lion's den a hero. He walks out a rescued survivor, rescued by God. You see, Daniel's not like Samson, right? We read in Judges 14, about Samson killing a lion with his own hands. That's not Daniel, right? They closed the door and Daniel just went to work on these lions and then just dragged them out. No, that's not him. That's Samson. Although Samson, I was just rereading that, that account in, in Judges 14, and it says that 
the lion that Samson killed was a, was a young lion. So it makes me a little less impressed, you know? It was a young lion. How young was he? I don't know. These were fo- As a matter of fact, did anyone hear about this story of the, the runner out in California who was attacked by a, a mountain lion? He's running on a trail in California. He gets attacked by a mountain lion. He wrestles this thing, chokes it out, and kills the, the mountain lion. I looked more deeply into this story. Turns out, it was a 50-pound mountain lion, okay? Which is like, what, my nine-year-old? Is that how big a 50-pound? I don't know how big. 50-pound mountain lion is not that big. And frankly, I'm not as impressed as I was when I first heard that he had killed a mountain lion. In any case, Daniel did not kill a lion. He was saved from the lions. Not to take away from that man's accomplishment. That that 50-pound lion would have probably torn me up, but maybe. I don't know. Daniel was in that den completely dependent on the rescuing power of his God, just like he was in exile completely dependent on his God. And if you and I are going to survive and, and thrive in exile, we need to acknowledge and embrace our utter dependency on the same God. You and I cannot strive for excellence enough or strive for integrity enough to get us through. This world, the powers of this world will tear us up. The lions of pressure, of trouble, of sin, sin out there and sin in here, the power of disappointment, those lions will devour us. We must depend on our God for strength and for resilience and for faith. And one way that that dependence will play itself out in our lives, like it did in Daniel's, is through prayer and the experience of intimate communion with our God. We need that. We need that. Without that, you and I will grow sleepy. We will grow numb and unsensitized to the danger of the lions around us. We will mindlessly begin to assimilate into the culture that we're in. Maybe we won't completely assimilate, but we'll start to to split off. We'll start to to lose integrity as we give over certain areas of our life and our conscience. Whether you realize it or not, you and I are as dependent on God as Daniel was among those lions. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be watchful. And and when Jesus talks about this, he says the way to be watchful is to watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit, the spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. In other words, you're weaker than you think. And sins that look like they have no power over you today, you will be surprised how much power they may have over you tomorrow. The sins that you think somehow you have under control right now, they're hidden and they're compartmentalized enough, they've already got control over you. You don't even know it yet. So pray. Do you believe that? To believe that the way to stay safe is to embrace your dependence on the Lord. And the way to embrace your dependence on the Lord in part is by fellowshipping with him in worship and prayer. For Christians, I think that the most typical sign of pride in a Christian's life is usually not boasting. It's usually the absence of prayer. The most typical sign of pride, not praying, because I got this. Disconnecting myself from the source of true safety and strength. Living in exile means being a praying people. You know, this may seem like a silly application, but I don't think it is. This this man, Daniel, was a high-ranking official in the most powerful empire in the world. He was responsible for overseeing at least 40 provinces, if not more. He was praying three times a day. A law is passed banning prayer. The penalty is death. He prays three times a day. That's not prescriptive for us. That's descriptive. It doesn't tell us we need to be praying three times a day. The New Testament seems to up it. In fact, it says pray without ceasing. 
So the question is, what keeps you from praying? What keeps us from praying? What keeps you from seeking intimate fellowship with God? What keeps you from worshiping God corporately with the rest of the church and privately in your own home, by yourself, with your family? So much of how we view these spiritual disciplines, by spiritual disciplines I mean these these practices that God's given us, prayer, worship, reading the Bible, so much of it, the way we treat them, it seems so shaped by our own culture, this culture of busyness and this culture of consumerism that we live in. And and it's so foreign to what we see in the scriptures. You see, for him, Daniel was not a legalist. For him, praying was not just a duty. He was, we're as dependent and needy as he was. And God has given us these private and these corporate together ways to worship and fellowship with him. We're crazy if we think we'll grow as Christians while we casually skip and neglect these private and corporate practices. Church has been using them for thousands of years, and God's people were using them for many years before the church. So often I fear that we're afraid to say no to responsibilities and opportunities for us. Or for our kids, even though saying yes over and over again to those opportunities means that worship and time with our God, time with our God personally, time with our God together, time with our God with our church, those get squeezed out. Fellowship with God, whether it's private or corporate, these are vital aspects of life in exile. God says so. He says, pray without ceasing. Don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together. So what God has called vital, we we can't call it dispensable. Daniel didn't think it was dispensable, clearly. Let's not replace those things with what our culture calls vital. We can so fill up our lives with so many things that we have to start asking ourselves, wait a minute, am I living like an exile here? taken on so much here for my am I living like an exile or does my life and schedule reflect the culture of this fallen kingdom around me if Daniel were not a praying man a worshiping man he would have assimilated a long time ago as we close you know there's always a danger with all the these narratives in Daniel if we read through them there's always a danger that we'll come away feeling like the main point is be like Daniel, be like his friends, right, the end. And we start to see Daniel as if he's just basically an example. And one major problem with that is that, there are lots of problems with it, but one is that we have not always been like Daniel was here. <laughs> Most of us are not going to be as extraordinary as he was. We've already failed. We have not always been excellent. We have not always had integrity. And the fact is that even Daniel himself must not have always been like he was right here in Daniel 6. After all, he was a sinner. Right? There was sin in his life. Others just couldn't see it. It wasn't on the surface, but it must have been there. So if the message of of Daniel or if the message of the Bible is basically just this message of follow this example, then that's not a very hope-filled message at all, is it? If the message of the Bible or of Daniel is going to be a message of hope to us, we need more than an example. We need some hope that God, the God who sees us in our, in our mediocre efforts and in our split-off selves, will somehow forgive and heal us. And that hope is in this story. That hope is in this story. You know, scholars have debated for years about who it was that showed up in that den of lions to close the mouths of those lions. In verse 22, Daniel says, My God sent his angel, and he shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. And most people agree, most scholars do, that that figure that showed up to shut the mouths of lions was the same figure that showed up back in chapter 3 when, when Daniel's friends were in that furnace. And if they're right, and I believe they are, then it's God himself in the den with him. God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, 500 plus years before that same person of the Trinity took on flesh and became Jesus, the Jewish carpenter, here he is entering into this dark den to rescue this one that he loves. 
And over 500 years later, he would come again. And he'd face another den of lions. He stood before people who wanted his blood. They were hungry for it. And a ruler would even stand and say, I find no fault with him. And yet he allowed himself to be ravaged. He allowed himself to be torn apart. Jesus Christ allowed himself to be ripped and nailed to a cross. And then he rose from the grave. He rose scarred, but victorious. You see, this book gives us more than just an example. It gives us a victorious Savior. Each of us, New Hope, each of us was made by God to live for God with excellence, with integrity, independence on him, and we have all failed to the very last one of us. And that's sin. The Bible tells us the result of that sin is always death. It's eternal separation from God, his judgment. But Because of his deep, deep love for us, God himself was willing to live in this world, as a man, in exile, and do it perfectly. Better than Daniel. (laughs) Jesus lived with more excellence, more integrity, and more dependence on the Holy Spirit than Daniel did. And yet Jesus faced the lions of wrath and judgment for us so that if we trust in him, we won't have to. And that's a message of deep hope. So are, are there things that you are hiding Anything, areas of your life that have been split off and they're, they're hiding there, confess it to the Lord. Where are you failing? Failing to meet your own standards and failing to meet God's standards? Confess that openly to the Lord. And what you will find in him is someone who is ready to come and forgive and heal and transform you. This book doesn't promise us that whenever we face trouble or suffering, we, we're just going to come out unscratched like Daniel. But it does promise this to everyone who trusts in Jesus. God sees you completely. He sees every corner of your life, and he will accept you fully if you are loving and trusting in Jesus Christ. Judgment and condemnation? No. The mouths of those lions are shut for you. Now there's acceptance and love. Please pray with me. Lord, we confess that our lives would not bear up under the same scrutiny that Daniel's did. But what's more sobering than that, Father, is that none of us, not even Daniel, could bear up under the scrutiny of your word and your eye. And yet, because of what Christ has done for us, we can stand before you without shame, cleansed, covered, our integrity restored in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we stand before you on the basis of his integrity, his excellence. We depend fully on what he has done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we praise you. Amen.